Welcome to Texas History Lessons. This is lesson number two, where we take a look at the land that makes up Texas. I'm going to start with a couple of questions. What is Texas? Or why is Texas, Texas? What is a Texan? These are questions that are going to go on and on. A trick question. I don't think I'm going to be able to answer that those questions in this lesson. I think it's going to be an ongoing thing to think about. For me, Texas is home. Um, so that's a completely different thing in the minds of other people that it's just an image on a TV screen or something they've read about in a book. But the land that makes up the state of Texas is one of transition. It's a meeting point of three great regions. The Atlantic Gulf Coast, the Great Plains, and the Rocky Mountains. They all kind of converge here in Texas. To travel through the state of Texas is to constantly undergo a transition from one region to the next. And similarly, as we'll see, the history of Texas, just like the history of the United States, and I'd, I'd say the world, is also just one of constant transition, constant change, and going to move towards something new. And I think that's something we'll, we'll also see when we go into future lessons. But what is Texas? Why is Texas what it is when you look at it on the map? There is no geographic or environmental theme that leads to the distinct border of what we now recognize on the maps. That iconic, weirdly, partly curvy on one side and hard lines on the other, that image of Texas that just pops out. Uh, to, but to understand what Texas is, we must first understand that Texas is not defined by a particular people or even the geography. Texas really... I'll put this out. There is an idea. And once established, Texans worked vigorously to protect and further define this idea. Uh, this effort where the stereotypes and the mystique and the myth of Texas developed took hold of the imaginations of people in Texas and around the world. And that is part of the reason of what made Texas, Texas, is people's thoughts, their actual effort that they put into it. And we'll get into this a little bit more when we sometimes talk about the earlier historians that actually had a they had a, a a mission to make Texas seem special. They did a really good job of it. At one point, let's just say there was no Texas. There and nothing within the modern day borders of the state that would have led someone to see a reason to unite the lands within the border as a place. Uh favorite quote one of my favorite quotes was by Gary Snyder, a poet. He wrote the USA and its states and counties are arbitrary and inaccurate impositions on what is really here. Um, but like many a three-year-old is told, you get what you get and you don't pitch a fit. I mean, <laughs> uh, would it make more sense to maybe break things down? Um, uh, to back him up, historian Felipe Fernandez Armesto, in a wonderful little book called The America's a Hemispheric History, wrote, there are probably more secessionists, certainly more enthusiasts for states' rights in parts of the United States today than at any time since the Civil War. I have been amazed traveling in the United States at how state boundaries that look like arbitrary pencil strokes, easily erasable, often enclose a fierce and heartfelt sense of belonging. The extreme case is that of Texas, where an independent republic once flourished where the Lone Star flag waves everywhere as a memento of uniqueness, and where, alone among the states of the Union, you can see people in what amounts to the state dress, Stetson and cowboy boots. No other state has quite so pronounced a proto-national culture, 
but you can see the beginnings of something similar growing up almost everywhere as states' histories get longer and whatever is distinctive is more prized. I love that quote. And here I am creating a lesson on uh, Texas history. And the main point I want to bring up the quote for is because of his statement on the arbitrary pencil strokes of the state's boundaries, a point that I am trying to make clear myself. And I acknowledge that Texas exceptionalism has played a big role in creating this idea of Texas. I was just talking about it when the idea of people making Texas seem exceptional and promoting it is that has been a, it's has been a big part of Texan written history since the very beginning. I'm not a believer myself in exceptionalism. What I'm going to try to do is give a broader context, but beyond the arbitrary pencil strokes of Texas border. Texas author A.C. Green, uh, to further the point, actually wrote a book that was released in 1998. His title was Sketches from the Five States of Texas, in which he dealt with the more reasonably bordered states that he could imagine, basing it on cultural factors, developmental factors, the way things were in the 90s when he wrote it, the past history being all taken into context, the economics of the different areas. And he, and he, he came up with something that's fairly, for most Texans, would look at and seem reasonable. The state of East Texas, the South Texas, North Texas, Central Texas, and the state of West Texas. The least populous of those would be, have been West Texas. North Texas and the coast and East Texas would have all uh, fared out pretty well. Um, but that's a, that's a wonderful little book and we're going to, I'll take a look at it on another lesson possibly. Now had the Spanish and the Mexican idea of Texas as they saw it as an area carried on into Texas admission to the United States, the Lone Star State would have been much smaller and kind of more geographically practical along the terms that AC Green was talking about. The inhabitable part of the land in the area that they actually could control would have been Texas. Had the rebellious Texans succeeded in carrying forward their idea of what Texas was when they agreed to, to uh, forego their problematic republic and accept the open-armed embrace as a state into the American republic, the modern map would have looked far stranger than even it does today. The state would have been much, much larger, reaching way up towards Wyoming in these thin little lines past Colorado. But luckily, instead, the idea of Texas was cemented in the Compromise of 1850 when Texans agreed to drop their vast claims in exchange for the United States' assumption of the Republic of Texas' large, large debt. Hence, the geographic border of Texas was born. To put it simply, the Texas of Spain and Mexico would basically encompass the land of East Texas, north of the Nueces River. You can kind of imagine a line of Austin and San Antonio a little bit farther uh, out, maybe in the southwest of there, and then up towards the the eastern border with Louisiana now, including the Gulf Coast, not including the Rio Grande. They did not consider the Rio Grande the southern border of Texas. But the Texas that we have is one that is essentially defined by hard, straight surveying lines in the west and northwest, the Panhandle region, and by following natural features in the southeast and north along the Red River, the Sabine, and the Rio Grande. We will deal in more detail on how the borders of Texas changed over the years in another lesson. But what about the lands and waters within the iconically shaped state that we've had since 1850? First, let's talk about size. Texas is big. The idea that Texas is vast is without question. Dropping from 
the being the largest state in the United States when the gargantuan Alaska became a state in 1958. The border of the state is 3,800 miles long. It contains 267,338 square miles of rivers, plains, woodlands, basins, plateaus, canyons, deserts, rivers, prairies, and mountains. Now Texas has 254 counties. The Texas of 1836 had 23. Yes, they claimed a larger area, but they there was no way they could actually enforce or control it. And as we'll see in later lessons, and what's the good of claiming something if you can't have access to its resources? The people that have it are the ones that really have it. Uh, the piece of paper is one thing. The ability to to control that territory is another. So started out as 23 in 1836. Um, now we're growing to 254 counties. Should stay like that. Some have barely over 100 citizens, though, like Loving County out in the West Texas. It has 134 citizens. Not much. But, but a lot of others, though, are urban areas flooded with inhabitants. Like Harris County has 4.652 million residents. The smallest county is 149 square mile Rockwall County near near Dallas. But then contrast that with Brewster County, and it's 6,192 square miles. 6,192 square mile county. Also in West Texas. Uh, another example of how big the state of Texas is. The, the first state in the Union, Delaware, it would fit in Texas 108 times. The smallest state, Rhode Island, would fit in Texas 221 times. And now here's this little give a little nod of respect to Alaska, which replaced Texas as the largest state. It's so large that only about 40% of it would fit in Texas. That's how big Alaska is. The distance from El Paso to Houston is about the same as El Paso to Los Angeles, California, or it is for Houston to get to Florida, to go from Houston to Florida. That's how broad Texas is. You go through several states in either direction to get to California or Florida. If Texas was still an independent republic, it would be the 39th largest country in the world. The United Kingdom would fit in Texas 2.8 times. And you could also fit all of the Netherlands, Slovenia, Switzerland, Austria, Belgium, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Luxembourg, Macedonia, and Hungary into Texas at once. All of them. Texas is also big now in population. California has nearly 40 million residents, in, and it's in first place. Texas comes in second with almost 30 million. Now, one of the things was a lot of the imagery of Texas is rural and country and farmers and ranchers. Most of these people live in urban areas. Texas is a highly urbanized state, highly industrialized state. Most people live in an urban setting or suburban, but we'll get to that. We did have cowboys and farmers and things like that for a long time. We were most people, but that was a long time of, of uh, another transitional period that we'll look into later. Florida's third with 21 million. New York has 20 million. And Pennsylvania has 13 million. That's the ranking of population as it sits in 2020. Texas also has three of the largest cities in the top 10 of the United States. Houston, San Antonio, and Dallas are in the top 10. Austin's number 11, 
and Fort Worth is in 13. So that's five of the top 20 urban areas in the United States in terms of population. So that, again, reinforces the idea that we are uh, very uh, different from a lot of the, the things we've seen in uh, media in the past. But let's get back to the land. Let's talk about rivers. If you follow the course of each of the top 10 Texas rivers based on length, and only in Texas, because many of them flow in other states or come from other states, you would be doing a canoe trip of 5,371 miles. They all drain to either the Mississippi River, the Rio Grande, or the Texas Gulf Coast, with mouths located in seven major estuaries. The longest Texas River is the Rio Grande. 1,250 miles of it flow along the Texas border. It's 1,850 miles long total going up into New Mexico. The second longest river is the Red River, 1,360 miles long, 680 miles of which are in Texas also. The Brazos is third with a length of 1,280, 840 miles of it are in Texas. The Pecos out in West Texas is the fourth longest overall um, total. It's 926 miles, but most of it is really in New Mexico. Um, only a smaller part of it flows in Texas as it goes to leads to the Rio Grande. Colorado River is the fifth, 862 total miles. 600 miles of it are in Texas. The Canadian River is sixth, with 200 of its 760 miles being in Texas. The Trinity River, number seven, is 710 miles long and entirely in Texas. It's the longest Texas river with its entire drainage basin within the border. Number eight is the Sabine. It's 360 miles in Texas, 550 miles total. The Neches River, number nine, is 416 miles entirely in Texas. And the Nueces River, which Mexico considered the southern border of Texas, is 315 miles long and entirely in Texas. And it also has the shortest river, the Comal River, of three miles. In addition to all of these, Texas has 3,700 named streams and another five major rivers with a total of 80,000 miles of waterways. In later lessons, we will look at many of these rivers and streams and their river valleys and the importance that they had in the development of the state as farmers and settlers moved up the river basins. Uh, to live. Texas also has many beaches to offer. Mustang Beach, Stewart Beach, East Beach, Crystal Beach, Jamaica Beach near Houston and Galveston, uh, Corpus Christi Beach, McGee Beach, and the famous or infamous South Padre Island, of course, which most people have probably heard of. Texas also has, this is something that surprised me, about 50 islands, most of them being very small. The big two are Galveston and, and Padre Island. Ward Island is off the shore of Corpus Christi. Matagorda Island is a sister to Galveston. And then Padre Island is also the world's longest barrier island. In the southwest part of the state, the Trans-Pecos region, there are seven mountains that are greater than 8,000 feet in elevation above sea level. The Guadalupe Mountains were actually underwater about 265 million years ago and were part of a flourishing reef that stretched about 400 miles at the edge of a vanished sea. Here also is the northern reach of Mexican Mexico's Chihuahuan Desert. In East Texas, you can find its woodlands, the Piney Woods and Big Thicket. Then there is the Cross Timbers region that stretches from Oklahoma down towards Austin. Texas also has canyons, the most notable being the 120-mile-long Palo Duro Canyon, which was a favorite site for Comanche and the place of their final attempt to remain off the reservation. 
But these are all isolated specifics. How does the state of Texas flow together when where you'd actually just travel around it? You can't really generalize when it comes to describing the land of Texas. The closest you can get is say that it decreases in elevation north to south and that rainfall increases from west to east. The overall land configuration tilts to the southeast, a fact evidenced by noticing how all the major rivers we just went through talking about, they all make their way towards the Gulf of Mexico or in that direction towards the Mississippi. Historian Walter Prescott Webb noted, despite how large the state is in size, it is, quote, but part of that long slope which descends from the foothills of the Rocky Mountains to the Mississippi and the Gulf. The land then tilts southeast. Several rivers flow southeastly, like I just said, in almost parallel courses, the Red River forming the northern border, Rio Grande forming the southern. Between them flow the Sabine, Natchez, Trinity, Brazos, Guadalupe, San Antonio, and Nueces. And in the west runs the Pecos we've mentioned, a tributary of the Rio Grande and the desert region of the Trans-Pecos. And that's the order that they go from the Red River to the north, Sabine, Natchez, Trinity, Brazos, Guadalupe, San Antonio, and Nueces. Now, back to traveling through the state. We are fortunate today to have satellite imagery with which we can see the shift of physiographic changes just by looking at the map printed out. There are four major physiographic regions. Uh, Most sources will tell you the Gulf and Atlantic Coastal Plain, which was the heart of the Spanish settlement area, along with the interior lowlands. And then... There's the Great Plains and the Basin and Range area, far west, Trans-Pecos region, intermontane plateaus. But these can be broken down into more subdivisions with a little bit more precision. So let's start at the Gulf Coast at the mouth of the Rio Grande. Here you'd find yourself in the South Texas brush country, along with a much smaller area of coastal sandy plains just north of the Rio Grande and partially surrounded by the brush country. Moving up the coast, you reach the Gulf Coast prairies and marshes, running up the coast to the mouth of the Sabine River, which forms much of Texas' eastern border. Along the Gulf Coast, again, are going to be the, the major islands, Galveston Island and Padre Island, and the, some of the other islands we mentioned there in the Corpus Christi area and Galveston area. North of the coastal plain are the Piney Woods, 23.4 million acres of woodlands. Here, steamboats once traveled to Jefferson, Texas, making it an early center of commerce and a leading city for the state. A solid dome beneath Grand Saline is in that area that could supply the salt needs of the world for 20,000 years. And around Dangerfield, Texas, people dug iron ore from the Red Hills. And then later on, it's an area that oil discovery would provide a lot of wealth to a lot of people. Turn west from the Piney Woods the big thicket area turn west and the land transitions to oak woods and prairies broken by a big broad swaths of blackland prairies rich farmland for several several decades that reached down to austin and the south texas brush country and here's where you're going to find cities of fort worth and dallas and denton and sherman and and on and on uh, in the north, near the Red River, the prairies are interrupted by another little woodland area called the Eastern and Western Cross Timbers. That area in particular caused a little bit of trouble for people trying to travel through because they were so dense for the early travelers. And west of the Cross Timbers begin the larger rolling plains that stretch south to the small Llano 
uplift that is surrounded by prairies to the north of Edwards Plateau on the south, east, and west. West of the Edwards Plateau is the Trans-Pecos that we've been talking about, which is just below the high plains of the Panhandle. So that's not a perfect summary, but that kind of shows you how they kind of tie together. If you can pull up a map while listening to this, you might want to go back and just watch the flow and the change in the the topography and colors and shades. Um, You can see where all this ties together. I think a quote from Caleb Pirtle's Texas will help flesh this out a little bit better than all my description of statistics. So quote him, he said, Texas is blessed and cursed with a diverse landscape. High plains, rolling prairies, thick forests, steep limestone hills, sun-blistered deserts, rich black farmlands, mysterious backwater swamps, and granite mountains born in the angry growl of volcanoes. West Texas is defiant, its prairies without end, its gardens full of thorns and mesquite, its mountains rising like lonely watchtowers in a haze of purple and midnight. East Texas is soft and gentle, a whisper in the pines, where isolated patches Isolated patches of tall timber have never been touched by the footprints of mankind. The Gulf Coast is carefree, not unlike the gulls that sail the winds of Padre. The valley is magic, the illusion of palms upon a wild horse desert. North Texas has a city's eye for big business, a cotton farmer's willingness to roll up his sleeves and go to work, regardless of what the job may be. And the heartland is sometimes regal and sometimes rowdy but always a refuge in times both good and bad, as noble as the great oaks that stand tough within the hills. And each of these varied regions, this is me now again, the quote is over. Each of the many varied regions served as home to a variety of first peoples, Native Americans long before European contact with 1492. And we're going to talk about them very soon. So this is the land that is Texas, but... Did I really answer the question I started with, what is Texas? I have to say, not really. I think it will be an answer revealed over several lessons as we cover thousands of years of history. We're going to see why Texas is from the decisions and acts that were made in the past. Also remember that this is just an introduction to future lessons on Texas and its land. I'll take a more detailed look at many areas of the state in the future. It's too big to really cover very well, even in this amount of time. I don't feel like it's, uh, it's it's very difficult to do. But what are the main points I want you to take away from this lesson? Texas is large transitional zone between varied environments, and as we will later see, it is also a transitional zone between different Native American nations and cultures. Texas is large with many diverse physiographic regions with abundant resources. And the fact that Texas is so big raises another question to think about alongside what is Texas. And what does it mean to be Texans? Does size matter? Of course, this current situation makes the answer seem kind of silly. Texas is a very large political, populous, and economic power within the United States. But early on, we will see claiming a large territory and actually controlling it are very different things. The Spanish Empire was vast, vast, and claimed much of North America and all of South and Central America, except for maybe a small parts. And Texas was a small but important buffer zone in the big picture. Spain and Mexico after it ultimately failed to maintain much control over what they claimed. The Texians that established the Republic of Texas claimed a very large reach, 
but in reality, it never really existed in practice much more than it was in the 1840s until the mid-1870s. Remember how many counties Texas now has? 254. Remember how many it started with? In 1836, the Republic was only 23. And in actual practical terms, that was Texas. They worked really hard to fill out and spread out as much as they could, could in the next couple of decades. But it was a small, lowly populated nation that claimed a vast territory. Now, the Comanche nation that arrived in the southern Great Plains in the early 1700s established a greater hold over a vaster territory than the Spanish, Mexicans, and early Texans were ever able to really enforce in the state boundaries. But hindsight is 2020, as the old saying goes. And eventually it worked out for Texas, the state. But we will see that it was a long, drawn-out process for the Texans to get control over what they claimed and what is now Texas. And we will see the bloody, often vicious, and cruel methods that it took. So that about wraps it up. And the next few lessons, we will take a look at prehistoric Texas and the arrival of the first Americans. I told you we're going to actually get to do some real-time traveling here very soon. I'm very excited about this. This is some... Uh, very exciting information, and it's a it's a topic that's constantly new things are being uh, revealed and new things are being learned about the distant past. A lot has happened in the last couple of decades as far as what we now know compared to 20, 30, 40 years ago. Then we're going to look at the first peoples that were living here in these regions of Texas when the Spanish arrived. And then we'll start to deal with the arrival of the invaders from across the ocean and how they drastically and severely changed everything. And occasionally I'm going to throw in a lesson on a particular person or event just to break up the normal flow of the chronological lessons. But that's kind of where we're headed here. Um, Thanks for listening. Uh, We'll see you next time.